Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Usually, each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, however, I'm doing something a little bit different. This week, I won't be reviewing anything by Stephen King or adapted from his works. I know, I know. What are you thinking? How can I call it Stephen King Cast? Well, I might be deviating slightly, but I'm still keeping it in the family. That's right. In this week's edition of the Stephen King cast, in honor of the movie's upcoming Halloween release, I'll review the third publication from Stephen King's oldest son, Joe Hill, 2010's darkly comic love story, Horns. Now, I first read Horns when it came out four years ago, and it was one of those book experiences where I both couldn't wait to get to the next page and dreaded it at the same time, because each page read was one page closer to the end, and this was a book I didn't want to finish, and I'm very glad to have read it again. It's a solid book. Um, If you haven't read anything by Joe Hill, I strongly suggest that you stop listening to this and go out and get everything that he's he's published so far from the collection of short stories, 20th Century Ghosts, to his first novel, Heart-Shaped Box. Uh, Horns was his second novel. Um, He just released Nosferatu. and then for, for years, he, he had a, a comic book, Lock and Key, which is just absolutely magical. The, the guy is a, a talent, um, and what's awesome about him is that he, he doesn't publish under his father's name because he, he wants to make a, um, a name for himself without having to, uh, to rely you know, on, on the family name. And he succeeds. He's a solid talent, um, completely um, you know, his own. So I... Uh, I cannot speak highly enough of of Mr. Joe Hill. So, before we get to the review of Horns, I'm going to read this Wikipedia summary so I'll have a solid foundation upon which I can build my analysis. Horns. The novel consists of 50 chapters, with 10 chapters grouped into five larger sections named as follows. Hell. 26-year-old Ignatius Ig Parrish wakes up one morning after a drunken night in the woods containing an old foundry near where his girlfriend's corpse was discovered, to find that he has sprouted bony, sensitive horns from his temples. Ig is the second son of a renowned musician and the younger brother of a rising late-night TV star, Terry Parrish. Within his hometown of Gideon, New Hampshire, Ig has position and security, but the rape and the murder of his girlfriend Marin Williams changed all that. Though he was neither charged nor tried, nor had committed the crime, Ig is largely considered guilty in public opinion. As Ig leaves the apartment he shares with his friend with benefits, Glenna Nicholson, he notices that she is strangely honest with him about her desire to binge, her feelings about his unwanted presence, and the fact that she performed oral sex on a mutual high school friend of theirs, Lee Tourneau, the previous night. As Ig goes to a medical clinic to deal with the growth on his horn of his horns, he discovers that people have a sudden compulsion to blatantly express their ugliest and most animalistic urges desires and opinions to him, and that no one, neither those whom he already knows, nor those he meets for the first time, seems surprised to see the horns. Moreover, when he makes skin-to-skin contact with the individuals, he immediately learns their identities and some of their darkest secrets. They forget about their conversations with him as soon as they're over, as well as forgetting about the horns. He also realizes that he can make people give in to the ugly urges they have, In fact, the horns pulse in a pleasurable fashion when he does so, but he cannot make them do things that they do not already want to do. He experiences these revelations with the doctor he talks to, two previously acquainted police officers, his church's priest and a nun, and others he encounters. Going home, he discovers that his parents and grandmother detest him and believe him to be Marin's killer. He then meets his brother Terry, who seems to be the only sympathetic member of the parish family. Under the influence of the Horns' power, Terry confesses that he knows who killed Marin, Ig's childhood best friend Lee. Ig, in an episode of Diabolical Passion, releases the brake on his grandmother's wheelchair, and she goes rushing down a slope at a precarious speed. Section. Cherry. The high school past of Ig and Terry Parrish, Marin Williams, and Lee Tourneau is explored, with the cherry as a common motif, referring to Marin's red hair, the loss of virginity, and the character's involvement with cherry bombs. Ig agrees to a bet. 
If he rides a shopping cart naked down a perilous trail in the woods by the Knolls River, he will receive a cherry bomb. Although he breaks his nose and briefly loses consciousness when he crashes into the river, Ig survives, believing that Lee Tourneau pulled him out of the water and resuscitated him. Ig and Lee immediately become friends, though Ig is pestered by the uncomfortable feeling of owing Lee a debt. In church, Ig becomes infatuated with a red-headed girl who has been flirtatiously reflecting light off her cross necklace into his eyes. When a necklace breaks and unnoticed by her falls down, Ig collects it and decides to impress her by fixing it. But when Lee expresses an interest in her and shows him how to fix the necklace, Ig lets him have it instead. Later, Ig trades his cherry bomb with Lee in order to get back the cross. With this, Ig greets Marin, and the two soon become de facto girlfriend and boyfriend. Lee detonates a cherry bomb and damages his eye, which becomes milky and has impaired vision, though his other eye is unimpaired. Lee is also revealed to be a juvenile delinquent, having stolen and sold various items, perhaps as a way of venting his seemingly groundless hatred of his mother. Ig feels not only that he may be responsible for Lee's accident, but that Marin should not go to the hospital with him to visit Lee because Ig thinks that it would be tantamount to gloating in Lee's face, having won the girl over Lee. The night of Marin's murder is partially revealed, specifically the drunken argument between her and Ig in a restaurant the last time they see each other. Marin explains that Ig, who is about to go to England for six months for his job, should openly pursue other women while there in order to gain some more romantic experience, Marin being his only romance ever. Ig is infuriated, thinking correctly that she wishes to permanently end their relationship and suspecting that she may have been cheating on him. He drives away from the restaurant, leaving her in the rain. Later, at the airport, he's about to board the plane when he is suddenly surrounded by police officers. Meanwhile, in the present day, Ig goes to the congressman's office where Lee works and tells Lee he knows that Lee killed Marin, but for some reason, he is unable to manipulate Lee with the horns. He also cannot attack Lee because of the congressman's security team, which includes Eric Hannity, another high school acquaintance. Ig drives back to the woods and the foundry and notices that snakes have started congregating around him. He listens to voicemails left by his friends and family on his cell phone and realizes that they think that he's missing, having apparently not remembered just seeing him while under the mysterious influence of his horns. He drives back to his and Glenna's apartment where he is attacked by Eric, just narrowly escaping. Returning to his parents' home, Ig touches a sleeping Terry's wrist and suddenly sees, from Terry's perspective, the events of the night of Marin's murder. Terry is riding in Lee's car when they pick up Marin, but is drunk and high and passes out while the actual murder takes place. Later, Lee convinces Terry to keep quiet, and five months later, a guilt-ridden Terry unsuccessfully attempts suicide. Although Terry begins to wake up, Ig discovers another power of his. He can perfectly mimic other voices and convinces Terry that he is their mother in the dark room before departing. Ig returns to the foundry where he finds an affinity with fire and wine and delivers a speech to the snakes. He asserts that the devil and women have always caused fear in God, with women being the more powerful because they, like God, have the power of creation. He argues that when Marin decided to break away from him to pursue her own ends, God detested her and refused to come to her aid while she was being raped and murdered, all because he feared a woman's power to choose who and how to love, to redefine love as she sees fit. God is a failed character too, detested by his own creations to appreciate them. Ig concludes that only the devil loves humans for who they are and what they are, despite some of their negative characteristics. The following morning at the foundry, Ig is abruptly assaulted by Lee, and the contact with him enlightens Ig as to just how Lee murdered Marin. Ig finds that Lee is wearing Marin's cross and tears it off, leaving Lee exposed to the horns' influence. Lee viciously beats Ig and tosses him in Ig's AMC gremlin, douses the car with gasoline, and lights it on fire. Ig is able to release the parking brake and the car, ablaze, rolls down into the river, in imitation of Ig's journey in the shopping cart years earlier. The fire, though reddening Ig's skin, has somehow completely restored him to physical health, healing the damage from his fight with Lee. There is another flashback with Marin regarding the time she and Ig visited a mysterious treehouse in the woods filled with religious paraphernalia. 
The two have sex and then pray when suddenly someone startles them by banging on the door in the floor of the treehouse. They quickly dress as the pounding continues, but when they open the door, no one is there. They are never able to relocate the treehouse and begin to believe that both imagined it, dubbing it the treehouse of the mind. Section 4. The Fixer Lee Tourneau's adult life as a close associate of a Christian conservative congressman and his sexual pursuit of Marin is explored. His mother acquired dementia and became weak and confused. Lee uses this as an opportunity to torture her while pretending to be a loving, caring son whenever anybody visits. Ultimately, she dies, and he uses her death as an excuse to become close to Marin. He consistently finds more meaning than is intended from Marin's gestures and choice of words, believing her to be sexually interested in him, and knowing that Ig will soon be leaving for Britain, eager to begin an affair with him. In reality, she means no such thing. Lee also remembers an experience from his childhood in which he attempted to feed and, and befriend a stray cat, only to be swatted at, causing him to fall from a fence and hit his head. He is impaled in the head by the spike of a pitchfork and receives serious brain damage. He undergoes a hallucination in which he perceives things as God would and then murders the cat. When he returns, his mother perceives nothing wrong, not investigating the cause of but rather only reprimanding him for his blood-stained pillowcases. It appears that from this point in time, his personality is changed and he has psychopathic thoughts. The section concludes with Lee's realization that Marin never wanted a relationship with him and his decision to rape and kill her. Section 5. The Gospel According to Mick and Keith Ig is fully healed by the flames, but his clothes have burned off. Naked, he finds an old skirt and black overcoat to wear in the woods. He scoops up Marin's cross and sees Dale Williams, Marin's father, among a small crowd that has formed near the burnt car. Dale, against his will, gives Ig a ride to the Williams house, and the two discuss their conflicts and the death of Marin's older sister from breast cancer, long before Ig and Marin ever met. Ig has a strange impulse to go to the Williams attic, seemingly having visions of the treehouse of the mine and its similar trap door. In the attic, Ig finds a group of papers written in Morse code and a mammogram that reveals that Marin, too, had breast cancer. Ig deciphers the Morse code to read a note written to him by Marin, who describes her feelings about knowing she will die from breast cancer. She encourages him to find another romantic partner, though she loves him. She says that she believes in the gospel of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, quoting from the Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want. It turns out that she had decided she didn't want chemo, but she knew if she stayed with Ig, he would find out she had breast cancer, and for her love of him, she'd have chemo anyway. So she decided to break up with him and die on her own to save him pain. Ig reunites with Glenna, whom he convinces to lead a more fulfilling life, and when she accidentally leaves her cell phone, Ig uses it to call Lee, and mimicking Glenna's voice, persuades him to drive to the foundry where Ig hopes to ambush and kill him. Terry unexpectedly arrives at the foundry, confessing that he has quit his TV job, though Ig begs that he flees. Lee's car arrives and both Lee and Eric exit the vehicle, armed with guns and aware of Ig's trap, having talked to the real Glenna. Ig and Eric struggle for a time before Lee shoots and kills Eric, hoping that it will look as though Ig and Eric killed each other without Lee's involvement. Lee then gorily beats Ig with an empty shotgun until, until Terry reappears, blasting his trumpet into Lee's ear. With this distraction, Ig finally slams his horns into Lee's body. He then telepathically convinces a snake to slide down Lee's throat, finishing him off. As Terry goes to use Glenna's phone to call emergency services, he is bitten by a venomous snake that Ig had placed there to attack Lee. Desperately, the gruesomely injured Ig crawls over to a gasoline canister, hoping that he can light himself on fire quick enough to restore his diabolic flesh and get Terry to a hospital. As he prepares to self-immolate, Ig begins to remember, in hazy flashbacks, his activities of the night when he was drunk the morning before he awoke to discover the horns. In his inebriated state, he miraculously came across the elusive treehouse of the mind, and while knocking on the trap door, discovered that he was the one the younger versions of himself and Marin had heard knocking on the door all along. The night before he grew horns, he climbed into it and set it on fire. The treehouse had rules written on a piece of parchment. Take what you want while you get here. Get what you want. Get what you need when you leave. He needed to kill the person who murdered Marin, he felt, and he began to feel a tingling near his temples, implying that this desire would later cause him to become devil-like. 
Back in the present time, Ig is restored to health by the flames and tells Terry that he needs to lie about what has happened here. Eric and Lee are both dead, and Terry needs to believe that Ig died too. Ig goes to the cherry tree that once held the treehouse of the mine to find that a line of fire has reached it from the foundry. The treehouse itself has reappeared beyond the flames, and Ig climbs up to the burning tree, enters the treehouse, and finds a wedding party within, and Marin awaiting him. Sometimes later, Terry is recuperating from his snake bite, believing, thanks to the influence of Ig's horns, that Eric and Lee killed Ig by burning him in his car, and that the two then tortured Terry with the venomous snake before they killed one another. Although the detective doubts that this story is true, Terry is the only living witness. Terry goes to the woods to have some peace of mind and is joined by Glenna. When she leaves to begin packing for her move to New York City, Terry believes that he can hear the faint sound of a trumpet and decides that's time for him to leave too. The inner front and back of the cover of the book has a repeating message written in Morse code. It reads, Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name which are lyrics from the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. It refers to the characters, the novel's themes, that the devil is more than, uh, of an anti-hero than a villain. So what I'm going to do, um, I'm going to break it down uh, section by section, starting with um, the first section, Hell. Uh, and I, I really want to talk about the, the introduction here, um, because everything about it is noteworthy. It tells you everything that you need to know. A character has uh, grown horns after getting drunk. There's an absurdity to how it's written that places it it's, uh, outside the realm of straight-laced horror. In fact, its tone is rather light and breezy, more comedic than frightening. Hill places us firmly in the perspective of our character Ig, even if it isn't quite the first person. It's still enough to recreate the sensation of, of greasy sickness that comes with a hangover and confusion from the horns, as Ig and the reader try to make sense of the two, as if the drinking, or his actions during the drinking, had caused the horns to appear, which, if you think about it, is ridiculous in all the right ways. If it were 100% horror, the author would have built up to this moment and would have spent pages and pages detailing the terror and dread of the horns' appearance. With Hill, however, it's less about the arrival of the horns, and more um, of, of, of what is the character going to do now that the horns are here? And as a character, we know that he's developed horns when he was drunk, and he's a type of man who gets that drunk, but Hill doesn't dwell on it or make it seem like it's a problem. It isn't heavy or even suggests alcoholism. It, like much of his writing, is both so similar and yet so fundamentally different from his father. In order to contrast the two, all you need to do is read Dr. Sleep, where King writes hundreds and hundreds of pages on Danny's struggle with alcoholism and presents a scene in which Danny wakes up with a horrible hangover after a heavy night of drinking. It's similar in the fact that both authors are able to capture that yellow-tinged sensation of a bad hangover, but King's focus is on the importance of drinking and what it means to the character, whereas in Hill's hands, the drinking is an extension of the character and serves to tell us about him. We learn more about the motivations of his night of drinking in Chapter 2, where Hill begins to reveal pieces of a picture that won't fully be assembled until the end of the novel. There was a girl named Marin. Marin died. Marin and Ig were a couple. Ig is dating someone else, someone whose mere presence causes him great guilt within him, as if he's cheating on Marin. Despite the fact that we meet him while he urinates on himself, we also get a sense that there's something noble about him, that what he felt for Marin was pure. Later, this will be confirmed and the relationship will be written with a poignancy that transcends the depths in which this novel will often sink, purposeful depths, not the fault of Hill as a writer. We learn that there's a darkness to Ig and anger, as evidenced by his urinating on a crucifix, which presents the other side to him. If Marin was his light, then the darkness has taken over, or at least that's what he thinks. There's an anger to him, yes, and he passively lashes out on his current girlfriend, Glenna, who he abandons at the bar after dwelling on Marin. Now look, I still haven't said anything about the horns, and this is a huge testament to Hill's abilities as a writer. If you gave this concept to any other writer, the horns would be everything, and with Hill, despite the title, the horns are second fiddle. For Hill, and this is where his strength lies, his focus is always on the characters. The horns, of course, don't only serve as a function for the plot, but serve as a symbolic cross that Ig has to carry with him, a physical manifestation of all his own guilt and the accusations and judgments pressed upon him from everyone around him. 
Ig learns about the horns as we do, and as chapter 2 rolls out, we are just as confused as he is. His conversation with Glenna is strange, and she speaks matter-of-factly about awful things. The reader might get a sense that this has something to do with the horns, and will later be revealed that it has everything to do with the horns, but at first, it functions to both disarm us and possibly even make us grin at its absurdity. Because as much as we should feel Ig's disgust at watching Glenna nearly choke as she eats the donuts, it's also played slightly comedic. And it's all so surreal. Creating this tone, um, it really requires a deft hand. Again, if it were a lesser writer, she'd see the horns and run away screaming. She sees the horns, but doesn't comment on them. This is a great decision by Hill, which sets the novel apart. The horns are not a source of terror, and the way in which they bring out the dark truths in everyone around Ig don't manifest in a dreamy trance. The matter-of-fact tone makes the story that much more dreamy and unsettling. Unlike his father, his writing is more streamlined. It's light, and he maximizes each word for its fullest effect. He's also a magician when it comes to capturing the truth of a scene, or a character, or a moment. And no matter what he writes, whether it be the, the ghost of a dead man's suit, an inflatable best friend, a soul-eating car, or a lost man with horns on his head, it feels authentic and always feels authentic. With the scene in the clinic, Ig starts to understand the effects of his horns. For one, he realizes that people can see the horns, but rather than just react to them, whoever he talks to discusses their darkest desire and asks him if it's okay to indulge it. In essence, the horns grant him the ability to become the devil perching on everyone's shoulder. It makes perfect sense. His name is Ignatius. His nickname is Ig, which is only one letter away from being named Id, defined by a dictionary as a part of the psyche residing in the unconscious that is the source of instinctive impulses that seek satisfaction in accordance with the pleasure principle and are modified by the ego and the superego before they are given overt expression. That is the perfect definition for Ig's new role, and this had to be purposeful on Hill's part. In the clinic, he sets the characters against each other, and Hill manages to keep it fairly light despite the heaviness of adultery and wishful matricide. Instead, he comes off more impish and in some ways sympathetic because who hasn't been trapped somewhere? Maybe in a long line, maybe in a restaurant, maybe on a plane, maybe in a waiting room like this with a screaming child. And in these times, who hasn't fantasized about telling that parent how you really felt? What if you could get satisfaction without even doing it yourself? What if someone else wanted to do it and all they needed wasn't even a push? but for you to simply unlock the gate. Wouldn't that be incredibly satisfying? As Ig drives around, we learn about his former best friend, Lee. And if Hill attempts to turn Marin's death into a murder mystery, he fails. It's pretty obvious that Lee is the killer. For one, upon his first mention, we know he's untrustworthy. Taking from Ig's perspective, Lee hooks up with Ig's current girlfriend, and immediately after Marin's death, Lee breaks off contact with Ig. Hill creates a red herring. Lee is, uh, is the political aide and can't be involved in a murder case, but it's a thin disguise. As he drives, we are also given a glimpse into the past between Marin and Ig, and Hill gives us a memory that solidifies the relationship in our minds. It's an incredibly important scene that shows the strength of Hill as a writer. We learn of a time when Ig and Marin were caught in the rain and made paper boats. First, the image of the candlelit paper boats sailing into the rain is a beautiful one. But he does more than create an image. He tells us about the characters. They're whimsical. They're carefree, imaginative, creative, fun, and thoughtful. And they make the most out of a situation. This is Hill's second novel. It's his third publication, but it's his second novel. And I want to take a moment to contrast this with King's second novel, Salem's Lot. In my review of Salem's Lot, I, I criticized King's handling of the relationship between Ben Mears and Susan Norton and Hill's portrayal of a relationship doesn't do his father any favors. In Salem's Lot, King subjected us to scenes between the two um, that were expository in dialogue um, and forced upon us a relationship that never seemed to work and existed only to serve a plot point later in the narrative. Here, however, Hill shows that he knows how to create a believable relationship and does so rather than detailing conversations, but instead by recreating sensations of familiar emotions that we, the reader, can relate to. So when Ig reflects upon a memory, it feels like our memory, like we were in that relationship, and it takes on the mythological aspects the author wants it to in our hearts and minds. It's important that Hill dwells on this scene, because if we don't fall in love with Marin, the novel fails, and scenes like this show us, rather than tell us, why Ig had fallen in love with her. 
Not only does this memory of the paper boat serve the tone, scene, and characters, it also serves as a haunting omen for things to come. Hill writes, Ig found a stained two-day-old newspaper, and when they got bored of not really reading it, Marin said they should do something inspiring with it, something that would lift the spirits of everyone everywhere who looked out on the river in the rain. They sprinted up the hill through the drizzle to buy birthday candles at the 7-Eleven, and then they ran back. Marin showed him how to make boats out of the pages of the newspapers, and they lit the candles and put them in and set them off one by one into the rain and gathering, twi and gathering twilight, a long chain of little flames gliding serenely through the waterlogged darkness. Together we are inspiring, she said to him, her cold lips so close to his earlobe that it made him shiver, her breath all clams. She trembled continuously, struggling with a laughing fit. Marin Williams and Iggy Parrish, making the world a better, more wonderful place, one paper ship at a time. She either didn't notice or pretended not to see the boats filling with rain and sinking less than a hundred yards offshore, their candles in them winking out. It's a beautiful moment, certainly, but the moment, uh, like Marin herself, is not meant to last. So, like I said, it serves completely so many things at once. It just shows us everything that we need to know about Marin. I, I kind of fall in love with her from a scene like this. Um, and it just it tells the importance of the relationship. It just creates this, this beautiful memory for us. It makes me feel like we were there. But at the same time, like I said, it foreshadows, you know, she's like the paper boats. Beautiful for a moment, but not meant to last. Within the same scene, Hill teases us uh, the treehouse of the mind. Uh, referring to it as a shared hallucination, and immediately switches Ig's train of thought, thereby dangling a mystery in front of us, forcing us to press our noses even closer to the page. Hill never forgets to acknowledge uh, the same thoughts that we would have if we were in this situation. It makes Ig continuously relatable, even when he continues to undergo his transformation. He immediately goes to the doctor, and when that doesn't work, he goes to the church, thinking that an exorcism would cure him that a priest might be immune from the effect of his horns. And for someone raised in the 20th century with movies like The Exorcist and The Omen, he wonders if he can even enter the church and imagines burning up or being repelled backwards. It's a very natural thought to have in a very unnatural situation. Despite the fact that Hill keeps uh, Ig relatable, he doesn't hesitate to bring him to dark places. When Ig hears the awful thoughts of those around him, and upon seeing the dark secrets through physical contact, he lives up to the devilish nature characterized by the horns on his head, encouraging a lack of faith within the nun, confirming that she's wasted her life, trying to get the priest to hang himself, and probably the funniest moment of black comedy, he pushes his 80-year-old grandmother down the hill. The first section of the novel comes to a conclusion with Ig's return to his parents' house, interacting with each of his family members one after the other, telling him worst things about how they feel about him, and then Terry, his brother, reveals the worst truth of all, that Lee had murdered Marin, and Hill places us firmly in Ig's shoes when the reveal comes. The scene doesn't build up to a crescendo. It happens quickly, unexpectedly, and we are just as shocked as Ig is, even if the reveal itself isn't shocking. Not only does it conclude with the reveal with the horns pushing through the skin, um, but it's followed immediately by Ig pushing his grandmother down the hill. And we notice that a number of snakes are beginning to follow him. Uh, which implies that his devilish nature is starting to grow stronger. And we move on to section two, Cherry. So let's talk a little bit about the section title itself. So from a sexual standpoint, Cherry represents a forbidden fruit of sorts, you know, keeping the reference firmly in line with the devilish imagery um, that are found throughout the text. Now, the growing darkness established in the previous scene is abolished here in a flashback to Marin and Ig's first meeting, which takes place naturally in a church. The scene is light and humorous, and this is how you write humor in a novel. I say this because I tend to criticize Stephen King for his handling of humor, which is often one character reacting to a joke from another character by throwing their head back and roaring with laughter, as if we were supposed to do the same. Here, Hill writes the scene in a way feels appropriate uh, taking place on a sitcom, um, and, I, and I say that positively, um, with the friendly father giving his son advice while sharing his son's sensation of imprisonment while in church. Terry harasses Ig, their mother slaps him upside the head. It's filled with quick dialogue, the smallest of conflicts, figure out if the girl's signaling to him but trying to keep quiet in the church, but a conflict enough to keep the conversation moving along. And we're able to laugh 
with the characters, at the characters, at the situation, and it just it just doesn't feel forced. So this section is the origin of not just Marin and Ig, but the origin of Ig, Marin, and Lee. In fact, I'm going to make the argument that this section of the novel is Lee's story, whereas the first chapter was Ig's story. Hill establishes that the rivalry between the two, even if the rivalry is only one-sided. We see uh, that Lee attempts to impress Marin at the church, but she isn't interested. Then later at the foundry, Ig unknowingly one-ups Lee by rolling down the hill naked in a shopping carriage when he couldn't do it himself. He's even put in his place by Terry and Glenna. Lee's date is now visibly unattracted to him. Ig rides down the hill and is knocked unconscious. During his unconsciousness, we are given a scene to suggest that perhaps he died while in the water, and that with this death, perhaps something occurred that would later explain the horns. What that is, I can't say, but Hill makes the point that something happened to him while he was underwater. And eerily enough, it occurs in the beginning of chapter 13. On page 79, Hill writes, What he remembered was everything dark and roaring noise and a whirling sense of motion. He was poured forth into a thunderous torrent of souls, ejected from the earth in any sense of order, and into this other, older chaos. He was in horror of it, appalled by the thought that this might be what waited after death. He felt like he was being swept away, not just from his life, but from God, the idea of God, or hope, or reason, the idea that things made sense, that cause followed effect, and it ought not to be like this, Ig felt. Death ought to not be like this, even for sinners." He struggled in that furious current of noise and nothing. The blackness seemed to shatter and peel away to show a muddy glimpse of sky, but then closed back over him. What he also presents is a mystery surrounding his resurrection. Ig assumes that Lee has fished him out and saved his life, but to the reader, Lee is clearly confused. If someone had saved Ig, it wasn't Lee. If not, who? The scene at the foundry represents a loss of innocence for Ig. He literally dies which serves as a symbolic death for his childhood, and now baptized in the water, his first act, encouraged by Terry, is to lie about it. His innocence is clearly over. You know what scene had me on the edge of my seat? Just the scene where Ig hangs back in the church to wait for Marin. It really shouldn't be as thrilling or as tense as it is, but Hill perfectly captures the emotion of that scene, that of a boy nervously waiting for the girl. He fills each word with such monumental purpose and not only adds to the relationship, but adds to the mythology of the relationship to the point I expect constellations to be named after them. Again, the trick that Hill uses here is to lead us with emotion and let that emotion take over his characters, where his father, in the case of Salem's Lot at least, tried to wrench emotion from the characters and came up as cold as a vampire's touch. Instead, Hill perfectly captures the truth of this scene, the awkwardness, the hesitation, the lack of confidence, the second guessing, but undercuts it with such stylish writing and honestly, just good writing. This is my second time reading this book and honestly, I, like I, I choked up, like no joke, when Ig thinks of how he had believed that the message that Marin had flashed him with the cross was the word us. And skipping ahead to the end with the, the letter that she had written him in Morse code, the fact that she actually had written us it's beautiful, you know? I mean, th this scene captures the romanticism of young love, all the more romantic when juxtaposed against the misogynistic and budding sociopathic viewpoint of Lee, while simultaneously adding to the idea that their relationship was destined, that perhaps she had been sent to him, where it's not Marin's hands, but the invisible hands of fate that caused the Morse code. That there actually was Morse code, even if Marin herself wasn't aware. Um, you know, because at the time of this particular scene she denies it um so i i think that it plays on a couple levels there but you know ultimately she she does write the morse code um and the fact that upon first meeting she's flashing him a sign that says us speaks to the the love at first sight that meant to be aspect and it just makes this story all the more heartbreaking by the end of this chapter after the game of football their relationship is cemented you know, Mig, uh, I was about to say Ig and Marin, um, you know, what their uh, celebrity name would be. It's uh, Mig. I'll go with Mig. Uh, so let's talk about the cherries here. I don't want to get too explicit, but first of all, it's the title of the section. 
And second, on a literal level, it refers to the cherry bomb that serves as the MacGuffin for the narrative. You know, it's an object that Ig chases down the hill that during the chase brings about his end of innocence, hence cherry. In his quest, he enters the water as a child, literally dies, and is born again, baptized in the waters of young adulthood. It's a symbolic sexual awakening, all in pursuit of a cherry. The topic of forbidden fruit is discussed between Lee and Ig, um, where Ig explains that the fruit that Eve had taken from the tree didn't have to be an apple and could have been a cherry, which for all intents and purposes, in Hill's uh, viewpoint, um, he's saying that for the purposes of this book, he considers the cherry to be the oft-spoken forbidden fruit. In the grocery store, it should come as no surprise to find that Ig runs into Marin as she buys, you guessed it, cherries. We aren't meant to read that um, Marin is forbidden, but to illustrate the temptation that also comes from the symbolism of forbidden fruit. And of course, she will guide Ig through the rest of his journey towards adulthood. Now, all, look, this isn't to say that Hill handles all of this uh, deftly. You know, there are times that he just clubs it over our heads. Um, in this case, the fact that Marin and Ig eat the shoplifted, i.e. forbidden cherries together, and he keeps the pits in his pockets until he has a quote-unquote sweet-smelling wet lump in his jeans. I, I, I think... I. Uh, whatever. Uh, the section concludes with the, the blinding of Lee with the cherry bomb. His sins are revealed, and he, like Ig before him, is ushered into adulthood. Which brings us to section three, the fire sermon. As Cherry concludes, so does the flashback, and we return to the present. Remember, the first section concluded with the revelation that Lee had murdered Marin, and while we might have taken a break from the momentum taking place in the present, we learned almost all there is to know about Lee. Now, just as the first section, Hell, gave way to the reveal of Lee as the murderer and segued into Cherry, which introduced Lee, Cherry ended with the simultaneous darkening of Lee, combined with the growing romance of Marin and Ig, so it should come as no surprise that the fire sermon picks up with the Last Supper before Lee's assault on Marin. He makes a wonderful observation about something we can all relate to spotting one time or another on page 133. Ig followed the narrow state highway across sunlit open pastures and under trees that overhung the road into corridors of flickering darkness. He saw a shopping cart upended in a ditch at the side of the road and wondered how it was that the shopping carts sometimes found their way out here where there was nothing. It went to show that no one knew when they abandoned a thing what misuses it would be put to later by others. Ig had abandoned Marin Williams one night, had walked away from his best friend in the world, a fit of immature, self-righteous anger, and look what happened. Um, I think that we've all seen, you know, abandoned shopping carriages, um, and I don't think that we think much of them. I just, I love that this is an example of the writer's eye, um, and Hill definitely has that, and for him to take just that that something that, that we can all relate to seeing, that, that just everyday, oh, image um, of life, and, and turn it into a great statement about just the nature of existence. I think that that's, you know, as I said earlier, a true testament to, to his abilities. But anyway, he doesn't just continue the narrative in the present, but he continues the thread from Cherry and gives us glimpses into the past. The narrative choice doesn't just exist to provide key scenes in the relationship between Ig and Marin, but foreshadow and structurally reinforce the eventual time-bending aspects of this story. What began as a traditionally straightforward story gives way to a very imaginative story structure that combines flashbacks with linear storytelling that interwine with one another like the strands of DNA. Here, the flashbacks are not a separate story or a gimmick. They are integral to the understanding of our characters and for Ig's eventual redemption. The flashback to the pit in which Marin breaks up with Ig. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking for a number of reasons. One, by this point, we understand the love he has for her. Two, we fell in love with the two of them as they fell in love with each other at first sight. Three, we see the man Ig was about to become if her murder hadn't occurred. We realize that he hadn't just lost the love of his life that night. He lost himself and his future. Many times in fiction, especially thrillers, um, in, 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 in horror or, or weird 
Um, death is a plot point to, to push a character forward or to illustrate the dangers of another character if someone is to die by their hands. But here, under Hill's guidance, this death, it, it means something. I think that we feel the tragedy of it, the, the devastating loss of it. This novel could not function if we didn't feel it. It would just be a gimmicky story about a guy with a pair of horns on his head. Now, when you place this breakup scene in the context of the larger narrative and when you understand Marin's motivations, it's really hard to read this scene unfold. You know, no, knowing that she is, as Schmidt from New Girl would call it, white fanging Ig, when she needs Ig the most, is a sadistic little twist of the knife that Hill has staked through our hearts. Um, just knowing that she's dying... And his letting Ig go to live his life is understandable, noble in a way, but it's unfair to Ig, you know, who would want to say in the matter. You know, she knows he'll stay and give up the chance of a, a lifetime overseas, and this demonstrates her selflessness. But the irony of the situation, by breaking up with him, she actually damns him to a life of torment, guilt, and accusation. A very clear example that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Honestly, uh, this scene was hard to read. Um, I, I had to keep putting the book down at this point. Not, not because I was sobbing <laughs> or anything, but because it, it really felt genuine. Um, this is a breakup that hurt. You know, from Marin retracting her thoughts on children with Ig to the demystification of a magical moment spent in a, an illusory tree fort. Her words are, are, are barbed daggers flaying our skin. And to know that every, lie, every word is a lie... Um, just makes those barbs sink in that much deeper. Um, and, and Hill is clearly writing from some sort of experience here because he, he captures the, the, the horrid feeling of, of electricity that, that occurs from a moment like this. And, you know, Ig at one point, um, I don't have the actual page on me, so I'm not, um, reading the, the, the part. I'm paraphrasing it badly, but, um, Ig, you know, says something about th this this dueling, simultaneous, um, horrific feeling mixed with electricity, you know, because he's so amped up as they're yelling at each other. There's just there, there's lines like that that are, are just so, so honest. Um, it's a very, very honest scene. Um, like I said, just completely heartbreaking. You just want them to be together. I really want them to be together. And I, I'm screaming at the page. I'm like, no, no, just stay together and just be together with the time that you have. Um, I don't know. Uh, but when Ig returns to the pit a year later, he sees the waitress who had served them the year before. <laughs> Hill alludes uh, that she looks like Snape from Harry Potter. And Ig thinks of how Marin and he were going to read the Harry Potter books to their children. Well, um, Book Ig would be happy to know that the movie Ig is played by Harry Potter himself, Daniel Radcliffe. The scene in the bar during the present timeline doesn't contribute much to the story, but by the time Ig leaves, we don't learn anything that we don't already know. Um, just another example of how his horns work, and Hill writes she was half talking to herself, or maybe more accurately, talking with her own private devil, a demon, that just also happened to have Ig perish his face. He leaves the bar with the intent to murder Lee for the murder of Marin. During the car ride, we get a little glimpse of his growing transformation. He's so angry, he's blowing smoke out of his nose. Ig realizes that just because he has horns doesn't mean he's granted cosmic freedom to commit murder. His horns don't hold sway over what people don't naturally already want to do. The horns can only push people down a road they've already stepped upon. The horns can force someone off of their own path. Sorry, the, the horns cannot force someone off of their own path. So if someone wants to harm Ig, he doesn't have any extra superpower to stop that from happening. And as a result, the scene in which he waits for Lee is incredibly tense because we don't know what's going to happen. Once he reaches Lee, he realizes that he hasn't thought this through, and I'm sure that Hill had a chuckle at his character's hot-headedness. However, just as Ig turns to leave, Lee calls his name, and Hill plays with the reality of these characters, providing a description that depicts the two supernatural characters squaring off against each other, even though Lee does not have supernatural powers. It alludes to a cosmic battle of good versus evil. If you're not comfortable categorizing a character with horns shooting out of his head as good, then it's a cosmic battle between evil versus worse. Hill writes, He saw Lee through the wavering heat, rising off the blacktop, a rippled, distorted figure flickering in and out of existence, a soul and not a man. 
His short golden hair burned hot and white as if he were aflame. This combined with the scene in which Ig had spotted himself on camera, which revealed an image of what looked like his soul trying to flee his uh, demon-mutating body, illustrates that there's a connection between the two, characters whose souls don't match their appearance. Lee, a golden boy whose soul is blacker than tar, and Ig, who looks like the devil but is simply a lost and deeply wounded young man. This scene throws a wrench in Ig's plans and reveals that the, the kryptonite to his horn's superpowers um, is Lee himself. During their confrontation, Ig realizes that his powers aren't working on Lee, and we get a great description of our novel's true monster, of his disfigured eye. For a moment, the right eye was shot, and he was staring at Ig through the damaged eye. The eye shot through with those spokes of white, and for the first time, Ig understood what was so terrible about that eye, what had always been so terrible about it. It wasn't that it was dead. It was just occupied with other matters as if there were two Lees. The first was a man who had been Ig's friend for more than a decade, a man who could admit to children he was a sinner who donated blood to the Red Cross three times a year. The second was a person who gazed out at the world around him with all the empathy of a trout. And at page 166, our external conflict manifests itself. The battle between Ig and Lee, who admits to the murder without an ounce of remorse. Ig says... I want to see you die hopeless and scared in the dirt, just like she did. Lee smiled as if he had been offered a compliment. Do it, he said. Come on and do it. The frightening thing in this exchange is the horrible confession from Lee, actually telling Ig that Marin had enjoyed the murder. While we, cer while we don't, um, well, I, while we certainly believe that this is the talk of a crazy man, a sociopath. We're still left with the question of whether or not there's a little bit of truth to the exchange, specifically that Marin had wanted to leave Ig for Lee. Upon rereading, it's clearly not the case, but at this point during one's first reading of the text, we still don't know who Marin had been talking to, and our guts are churning at the thought that it was Lee. It's not the only mystery that Hill presents. Of course, the larger mystery here is how Lee manages to block Ig's powers. Ig wonders if it's the cross around Lee's neck, the same cross that had belonged to Marin. With this thought, Hill plays up the constant reversal that the story is built upon. Our hero, a devil, cannot exact justice because the true monster is protected by the power of God. Furthermore, the inclusion of the cross invokes the, um, the spirit of Marin, who is now trapped in the clutches of Lee and needs to be freed by Ig. Ig returns to the foundry, a black castle for a dark king, a physical location for a very real hell on earth, the spot where Marin was murdered and where Ig's transformation began. Of course, the location stands in stark contrast, the heavenly tree fort of the mind, which is all things good, where the foundry is all things corrupt. In the foundry, Ig spots graffiti all over the walls and gives an example of his bullet-like profundity on page 171. Thirty years of overlapping graffiti covered the walls. The individual messages were mostly incoherent, but then perhaps the individual messages were of no importance. It seemed to Ig that all such messages were the same at heart. I am, I was, I want to be. And that to me, again, like the shopping carriage scene, like to be able to look at graffiti and boil down the essence, the, the, the essence of the graffiti into the, just the purpose behind it, that it's just someone saying, hey, here I am, here I am, and I, I want to be something, and I guess the way that I'm going to do it is just by spray painting on these walls. Um, Make no mistake, this, he's, a, he's a very, very good writer. Um, I'm very much in awe. I, when I read Joe Hill, I have to stop every now and then and just take in what I'm, what I'm reading um, in a way that I don't with Stephen King. I mean, with Stephen King, you know, I'm, I'm slowing myself down for the, the King cast for the reread because it, I, I have to stop. I have to take notes. But if, if I didn't have to take notes and... You know, when Revival comes out in October, um, it's going to be a different experience for me because I'm going to read it for the King cast. So I will be stopping. I'll be taking notes. But if it if I didn't have the King cast and Revival was coming out, I would just read it and I would blow through it because King just hooks you in. and He, he just constantly forces you to go to the next page and the next page. And you can just steamroll through it. But for Hill, Hill... He just makes me stop every page or so and, and just really absorb what I had just read. And he makes me marvel at 
his metaphors and his imagery and his symbolism um, and and his, like I, I mentioned his ability to craft a tone and and this novel is just there's such uh, a metaphysical ex- existentialism to it um, you know I've read it twice now you know I mean I can tell you it's about a guy with horns but it's not about a guy with horns but I can't really tell you what it is about it's about you know it's about young love it's about accepting the future it's about those around us it's about letting go it's about a lot of things it's it's really not about a guy with horns anyway i'm, I'm kind of getting off of uh the the, the track here i want to get back on so while in the foundry ig finally confronts the growing number of snakes who have begun following him in the hands of a lesser writer he would have simply just complete control of the creatures but hill doesn't go the traditional route Rather than having the godly power of ultimate control over the snakes, the snakes function more like fans of his at times, disgruntled employees at others, but still always wild animals. In fact, our lord of the underworld here is bitten by one, showing us that he's still human, that the snakes are still snakes, and this transformation won't be as simple as you might think that it will be. Now, I I talked a little of um, the mysteries that Hill had woven into the story so far, Another one that rears its head is the the question of what happened to Ig the night before. He doesn't dwell on it very long, and as Ig checks his cell phone, we hear from the various characters that Ig has encountered throughout the day, each one not remembering the conversations that had taken place. The messages are not accusatory, loaded with guilt or the shame that had been present during the horn confession earlier, which raises the question of the effect of the horns. One question that isn't explicitly raised, but is there nonetheless, is whether or not the horns reveal someone's darkest thoughts or their secret truthful thoughts. If these are the thoughts that everyone truly feels, then the novel in which Ig exists is populated by some truly awful people. But if the thoughts are just dark thoughts that are pulled to the forefront of someone's consciousness by the magnets that are the horns, then what Ig perceives isn't, isn't really necessarily true. I mean, anyone can think of someone, of something. If I lived in that town, the possibility of Ig as the murderer would have certainly flowed through my mind, even if I didn't make up my mind at a later point, even a second later. Just because someone thinks doesn't mean that they feel it. And the question is whether or not the horns draw out the darkest thoughts that exist in the depths of everyone, which everyone has, or if these are the thoughts that everyone actually feels. Um, Right? You know, I I don't know if that made sense. But it's just an interesting question to pose. From the messages on the phone, it seems as though he is loved, even if the characters don't say it. His mom does, and I believe it. And Glenn's message is incredibly powerful. She's really putting herself out there, naked and unafraid. She understands herself in a way few of us do about ourselves, and her honesty is a breath of fresh air for all the lies and awful truths that we've received so far. Keep in mind that the confessions from the horns are the distillation of these thoughts to their purest twisted form. Glenn's confession about her lack of confidence and inferiority complex when compared to Marin ring more truthful than the deepest secrets that have been shared thus far. There's a healthiness to the truth, whereas the horns draw confessions... Um, that bring only sickness. The voicemail goes a long way in creating Glenna as a sympathetic character and a match for Ig. Um, And while it doesn't work out for them, um, I think that with this scene, uh, Hill is able to provide a bridge between the two characters. Um, And it provides a a what if, and the what if is maybe it could have. It could have worked. One way of looking at it is whether or not um, the healthy truth can arise after the dark truths are brought out by the horns, that the horns really aren't that bad and that good can come from this. And this question, if the horns can bring goodness, is true. Um, then it suggests redemption for Ig, our devil. When Ig, awaken, when Ig awakens, when Ig awakens, it's, it's a hard one to say, uh, we see that he hasn't lost his humanity. In fact, Hill goes out of his way to show his heroics. He hears someone in distress and leaps to his feet to save the day. We learn he's more powerful, more frightening, his voice now deeper and authoritative, holding, you guessed it, a pitchfork. He's turned a corner here, not really resisting his transformation, blowing smoke through his mouth and embracing himself as the dark monster of the woods, the creature from a fairy tale that will gobble you up if you stray from the path. But don't for a second let Hill fool you into thinking that he's taking this seriously. Because the next time we see Ig, he's taking a dump while screaming at terror in the snakes in his underwear. 
Egg returns to Glenn's apartment and realizes that in life, Lee had actually treated her better. This realization, paired with um, his feelings following the cell phone message, show his awareness that he had deeper feelings for Glenna than he had let on, or, or more correctly, had the potential to. While in the apartment, he comes across Eric, and the scene grows tense, the reader unsure of what is going to happen or how Ig is going to get out of this. The horns work against him, egging on the worst qualities of Eric, which are murderous, and when Ig can't dissuade Eric from intending to kill him, we feel genuine concern for his safety. Again, remember that we're talking about a character with horns sticking out of his head. He would be the villain or the monster in any other book, but here he's just as vulnerable, more vulnerable, because of the horns. When Ig returns to his parents' house, he finds Terry um, and Ig's ability to touch serves as a function to the story to provide the missing pieces to the night Marin died. By touching Terry, we are given a flashback of that night, and we experience Terry as he is quite literally along for the ride as Lee picks Marin up in the moments immediately following where it had left her behind. I'm sorry, when, when Ig had left her behind. Terry is inebriated, stoned, barely holding on to consciousness, and Hill makes sure to contrast Lee's sinister intentions with Terry's kindness. Hill makes sure to point out that Terry has consciously made it his point never to sexualize Marin because he would never think of jeopardizing their relationship. Lee, meanwhile, comes across as a manipulating homewrecker. Terry's last moment with Marin is poetic beauty. On page 202, Hill writes, Marin continues down the road, walking at first in the tunnel of brightness carved out by the headlights, then stepping off the gravel and into darkness. It is the last time Terry will ever see her alive. For Terry, the night comes alive in malicious clarity. It's as if the world's a hungry beast awaking to devour Marin. The night seems to be breathing. The grass um, sways and, and, and undulates in the night air. Terry then learns of Lee's ruthlessness, ensnared in his spider's web of lies, wrapped up as the suspect just waiting to be caught if he even thinks about informing the police that it was Lee who murdered Marin. We are also given a confirmation that Terry is completely innocent of the murder itself and is only blackmailed into keeping quiet. We gain even more sympathy when we learn of the guilt that caused Terry's suicide attempt and in the end, Ig forgives his brother by using his newfound powers of persuasion to recreate the sound of a loved one's voice to push you into doing something that'll ease your conscience. In this case, it's to let Terry go back to California without guilt. In the next scene, it's to push an elderly man into the arms of a friend so that the man doesn't push his Alzheimer-stricken wife down the stairs. It reveals the kindness to Ig, despite his horns and manipulation of events, and also reveals the complexities to life. Ig returns to the foundry. Um... Pages 216 to 219 of the, the, the edition I'm reading, it's the um, first edition uh, hardcover. It contains one of the, the clunkier sections of the novel so far, a, a very forced scene in which Ig both drunkenly and eloquently delivers a sermon to his congregation of snakes. The topic is on the relationship between man, God, and the devil, and women, and for a novel that is steeped in authenticity, this rings very false to me. It seems as though Hill liked the image of the devil presiding over a lonely pulpit whose parishioners are serpents. And there are very nice concepts sprinkled throughout the speech. Very well written, but the entire time I was reading it, I was asking, why? What's the point of this? Would Ig really say these things? Yeah, I get it. He's drunk. But would he, would he really do this? Not that the act is heinous. I'm not saying that's abhorrent. I just don't think that anyone would do this. It just it feels very much the hand of the writer in a novel that otherwise felt very organic. Thankfully, it doesn't take long because Lee arrives, brutally assaulting Ig while channeling his inner Bond villain, monologuing the entire time, revealing that he's been a supervillain. And I'm being serious. This guy is just evil. In the scuffle, Marin's cross goes flying, and Lee is suddenly vulnerable to the horns, which proves that what we had suspected earlier, not that does Ig any good oof, with a shattered jaw, and, Lig's, and Lee sets him on fire. Egg attempts to steer the burning gremlin into the water, symbolically returning to the spot where he'd been baptized, died, born again, and lost his innocence. Here, he's baptized by fire and is about to be born again. The fire has purified him and has made him whole. Hill writes, His skin felt stretched tight across muscles and bone. 
felt clean. He had never felt cleaner. This was how baptism was supposed to feel, he thought. The banks were crowded with oaks, and their broad leaves fluttered and waved against a sky of precious and impossible blue, their edges shining with a golden green light. Here, Hill juxtaposes the image of the devil with descriptions of heaven, symbolizing that despite his appearance, there's still hope for him, and there's still good in him. With the full transformation into a devil complete, along with the emergence from the river into a beautiful sunny day, it makes for the perfect segue for the reveal of the treehouse of the mind that had been hinted at so heavily, the treehouse, a symbol heaven that is built into one of the trees that surrounds Ig as he rises from the river. The treehouse of the mind takes the novel down a dreamy metaphysical path that's hard to make sense of but feels right. Is the place a palace created by them? Is it made for them? Is it a trap? Is it heaven? Is it a gift from hell? Is it all these things? Is it none of these things? You can answer yes to every single question and be correct. It's a scene that shifts from beautiful to frightening as the trap door is attacked by someone below. Of course, we later learn that the attacker is, is Ig, trying to climb back into the heaven that he's not allowed to return to. All right, everyone, uh, this is the end of this particular uh, chapter of the podcast uh, episode. It's not the end of the episode. Uh, it's just that the file was so long, I had to split it into two parts. Sorry, that background noise you hear are my two little Cujos uh, fighting with one another. Um, anyway, so all you have to do is just go right on to the next episode to continue uh, the next section Um the fixer uh and after that I'll, I'll get into you know deeper analysis so i hope you've enjoyed it so far and keep on listening uh to see what i have to say next